Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, September 16th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news, and I'm going to bring you, in our feature presentation, a Q&A with Joker director Todd Phillips and star Joaquin Phoenix. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Well, we had Friday off. Uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow in the water cooler. Uh, but let's dive into the news because we've got a, a couple things to talk about before we get into this interview. Um, let's first start with the Funko movie. They're making a movie based on the popular Funko Pop figures. Warner Brothers is doing this, uh, and they have some incredible Pixar and Disney filmmakers on board. Brad, tell us about it. Indeed, uh, the Funko movie was set up at Warner Animation Group earlier this year, and it sounds like it's making some progress moving forward, because uh, we've just heard that Teddy Newton and Mark Dindle, or Dindal, um, will be directing this uh, animated motion picture. Uh, Teddy has a background from Pixar as the writer and director of their short Day and Night. Uh, he also worked on designing characters for The Incredibles and Ratatouille. And in 2D animation, he also was a storyboard artist for The Iron Giant. Uh, so he's obviously somebody Brad Bird trusts quite a bit. Uh, and then Dindal, uh, he was at the helm of both The Emperor's New Groove and Chicken Little, uh, which aren't necessarily uh, part of Disney's uh, heyday in animation, but they're not necessarily bad movies either. Uh, so they're both working together to tackle this one. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all we know for now. Previously, we had uh, um, heard when this story wasn't entirely official uh, that the movie would feature a variety of different franchises, much in the same way that the Lego movie did. And at the time when the story first surfaced back in January, it was said some of the characters would include Wonder Woman, the Care Bears, Hellboy, Deadpool, Hello Kitty, Harley Quinn, Darth Vader... And My Little Pony. Um, so so uh, not all of those are Warner Brothers uh, entities, obviously. And there'll probably be even more that are included because Funko has their hands in uh, tons of different licenses for a wide variety of movies, TV shows, and video games. It just depends on which rights Warner Brothers is probably able to lock down to appear in this movie. Um, 
after all, you know, when the, the Lego movie came out, we didn't really see any Marvel characters popping up. It was all DC Comics superheroes, which is probably to Warner Brothers' uh, advantage um, and probably choice. But uh, so hopefully we'll see a wider variety this time. Again, since it's Warner Brothers, I can't imagine we'll see Marvel characters popping up unless they uh, work something out with uh, Disney and Marvel. But there are plenty of franchises to choose from to bring a wide variety of characters into this movie. But I'm left wondering whether or not we really need this. Um, (laughs) And we also the same thing about the Lego movie. But, you you know, you you can't capture lightning in a bottle twice. Uh, but I feel and... like the Lego movie is the one thing that everybody uses as the example of like, oh, we can do a Play-Doh movie now because the Lego movie works. So there's a way to do this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't uh, we don't really know what the story is yet. So it's it's tough to say. But I'm I'm very skeptical about this one. I, I think the fun thing here would be that clash of all these properties that don't exist with one IP holder and Funko is the way to put them together like i know funko recently started launching these board games uh which you can buy the these different figures basically each board game comes with a different map and different figures from that world so i think there's like a batman one and then there's like a golden girls one and whatever and eventually if you buy them all you can like fight the golden girls versus batman and stuff like you know it's like a mega mashup ah, of finally the Golden Girls versus Batman <laughs> movie I've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, th- that's besides the point. But I think the fun here is that Pop could be the gateway into having a fun mashup of characters from across the movie and TV and pop culture landscape. Sure, I- but that sounds like something that's more fun for like a video game or a board game, like they're creating, yeah. rather than a, a feature film with a head that needs a good narrative. True. I will say this, Teddy Newton, um, I've loved his work. Uh, if you search uh, Teddy Newton art on Google and go into images, you'll see a lot of the art that he created for for uh, The Incredibles. He just has like a fantastic eye for things. And I know Brad Bird has credited him with a lot of like the aesthetic uh, and cleverness of just even concepts. I think... Uh, the whole raccoon thing in Incredibles 2 was Newton, I think. Uh, I could be wrong there. Um, so, I, I don't know. I'm a fan of him. Uh, he, he was also developing a movie. He was going to direct a movie, and he was developing a script with Derek Connolly, who co-wrote or wrote Jurassic World. Um, and that was going to be at Pixar. I wonder what happened to that. But that is a nice transition into our next story, which is Jurassic World's short film, which premiered over the weekend, Battle of Big Rock. Uh, it premiered on TV. We talked about this last week, um, and I think we've all watched it at this point. So, Ben, what did you think of this short film? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. And, and as we were talking about last week, I, I'm you know we speculated a lot about Jurassic World 3, which is coming to theaters in 2021, and how maybe that movie might not have enough time to really get into and engage with the premise of the cliffhanger ending of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which basically ends with dinosaurs being set free in America. And um, this short, uh, which, you know, we talked about, it's like eight minutes long. It's online in its entirety. You can check it out at SlashFilm.com right now, uh, is all about, it's a very short story about this family who is camping and dinosaurs sort of attack or or show up at their campsite and start attacking the the people there. So um, it's one of those things where it's like, I I appreciate the... um, the willingness to engage with a concept that they may not have enough time to really get into 
in the full sequel, the full movie, because we've heard that uh, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum may be coming back to, you know, to reunite in Jurassic World 3. And then you've also got Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard and all the other characters in the Jurassic World franchise that are still around. So it's easy for me to imagine a case where that story is already pretty jam-packed without, you know, being able to spend the time on a small family just um, you know capitalizing on this concept. So I, I think the the short is pretty good. Trevorrow uh, co-wrote it with Emily Carmichael. He's co-writing the script for the new movie with her as well, and he wrote uh, he directed this. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was like pretty good for what it was. Yeah, and if if you want to see it, if you're listening to this, uh, I'll link it in the show notes. You can watch it on slashfilm.com. Uh, I thought it was great. It was a fantastic like small scale thriller but it has like some big scale dinosaur vfx it's um you know reminds me a lot of like you know like that scene from uh lost world where they're in that van like the big um Mm -hmm. rv yeah rv um it, it, it is it is like the best moments of like those kind of thrilling moments from the first two jurassic park movies um and i i i kind of wonder though this doesn't the story doesn't it's a great short film, and I advise everybody to watch. And I love there's some after credit stuff that's fun and shows kind of like how this world has changed after mm-hmm. the effects of Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. I advise everybody to go check us out. But this story doesn't really move along the story of this franchise much. It's kind of like a small scale like episode in the world, which makes me wonder why was this created? Was this really just created to? promote an airing of Jurassic World on TV or was this like what was the thinking behind this like are they thinking about doing more like short films like is it maybe is Universal maybe worried about having uh Colin Trevorrow direct this third installment of Jurassic World and like this is his proving point I mean I think if if it is a proving ground he proved his point I think this is pretty awesome uh Brad what did you think yeah, I like this short a lot, actually. Um, I'd be willing to go so far as to say that this is better than almost the entirety of Jurassic World <laughs> and Fallen Kingdom. Um, it's It has that spirit of the original Jurassic Park and it, it and the finer parts of the Lost World. It has great suspense. Uh, it makes you care about the, the dinosaurs that are being hunted by the carnivore. Uh, it has that new herbivore. Um, the, the name of the dinosaur is drawing a blank for me, but it gets attacked by an allosaurus. And having a family at the center of it makes it much more interesting than the characters that are at the center of the, you know, Jurassic world movies. And, uh, not only is the, the cast in this great, but you know, the, the kids help out too. Uh, especially I like little moments here when the, the Allosaurus attacks, uh, the little baby herbivore and like is, uh, you know, getting close to, to killing it. And the kids are like, Oh no, you know, like they're genuinely worried about it. Uh, so it's, it's just little, you know, just kind of moments like that that bring humanity back to Jurassic Park. And I think that's what's been missing from the, the recent two installments of the franchise. Um, and, and there's if, some if it, cleverness there with, like, the kid strapped into, like, the what, – what is it called? The, the, the high chair. High chair, yeah, and yeah. that being – putting him in danger. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 a really cool short. It's it's very well done, and I, I think probably its existence is – much like Ben said, it seems like they need needed some way to maybe – help bridge the gap between Fallen Kingdom and Jurassic World to kind of give an audience an idea of the world in which we'll, we'll, we'll join the franchise again back when the third movie comes out. Because I feel like what, by the time we get to the third movie, it'll probably be much in the same vein 
of the time that passed passed between like apes movies uh where will a lot has changed in the period of time between those movies and maybe they wanted to give the audience a taste of some of the things that they probably won't get a vibe for because by the time we get to jurassic world 3 uh you know people will be maybe used to dinosaurs already <laughs> existing in the wild you know because even in this short the way they're talking about it is like they know that they're they're out there uh, um, but it's just a matter of how far they've gotten and, and where they're at. So I, I think it's just meant to kind of set the stage for what's to come for the third movie. I feel like the, what I'm skeptical about is like this short film could have easily been the opening stinger for like the next movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe, they, like, maybe they have a better stinger, though, which is why they're doing this. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's also possible. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they wrote this for that, and then they came up with a better idea, and like Universal was like, why don't we make a – or, you know, they pitched it to Universal, and why don't we make a short? I don't know. We, we don't know. But, uh, you know, one thing to come out of this is Colin Trevorrow gave an interview with Empire and revealed that he once met with Marvel Studios for a little film called Guardians of the Galaxy. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, he uh, basically at a, a live podcast taping with Empire. He said, I did. I met on Guardians of the Galaxy long, long ago, very early. It was a great conversation. I was not a comic book kid. That wasn't my thing. I was a Star Wars kid, an Indiana Jones kid, a Spielberg kid. That was my thing. So it was a great conversation, but a little more of a personal understanding of you need someone who loved this growing up. They should be the ones directing these movies. You've got to live it and breathe it in the same way that I did Jurassic and these films that I get to be involved in now. So it sounds like he was one of a few people that came in to um, meet with Marvel uh, about potentially directing Guardians. Uh, some of the other high-profile people to meet for that job were Peyton Reed, who went on to direct Ant-Man, and Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, who eventually directed Captain Marvel. So, um, yeah, Colin Trevorrow uh, potentially you know, stepping into the Marvel world. But uh, it sounds like, you know, by his own admission, he just didn't have the the connection with the material that somebody like James Gunn did. And it's really hard to imagine you know, this iteration of the Guardians without James Gunn's yeah. personal touch all over it. Well, it's also good to have a filmmaker realize that because I feel like a lot of people, like someone like him who loves Star Wars and comes to that, like, might, like, be like, oh, this is a way for me to do my back, my, uh, you know, a backwards edition of, like, Star Wars that doesn't, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's yeah, a way yeah. to do that and, like, to realize that you just don't, you know, you don't have a love for that property. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he went in and pitched it anyways, but, uh, you know, James Gunn got the job and I'm. I'm kind of glad because I can't imagine what a Colin Trevorrow Guardians Galaxy movie would look like. Brad, what, what would it look like? Uh, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I probably like Colin Trevorrow more than most. Um, you know, I he's a very nice guy. I think he's been dealt kind of a bad hand as far yeah. as becoming this poster child for a director that's been handed. Brad, Brad I was you setting know, you up for a joke about Gamora and high heels, but you didn't go for it. <laughs> oh no no I did I, I didn't want to be mean. <laughs> I know. I, I, was... I, I lo... <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's move on to our, our last story for today. Uh, Kevin Feige, speaking of him in Marvel Studios, uh, he did, he won an award at the Saturn Awards and revealed that there is a new Infinity uh, Saga box set coming out that will unleash the Marvel Vault. Brad, what is the Marvel Vault? Uh, the Marvel Vault is something that apparently exists, and it will be opened to unleash some new material that will be released as part of an Infinity Saga box set that Kevin Feige says is coming sometime later this year. 
Uh, they've shot 23 movies now, and Kevin Feige says that they have, you know, done enough that they have a lot of scenes that they haven't uh, revealed to the public. They haven't been put out on uh, Blu-ray or DVD for any of these movies, and it's stuff that they they feel comfortable enough that they can release. It's it's funny because this is something that he talked about, uh, you know, quote unquote hypothetically back in August when he was making the PR rounds for Avengers Endgame. Uh, he was talking to Empire. And he had said, if we do a big giant Infinity Saga box set, uh, that they might include some uh, bad scenes that, you know, otherwise might turn Marvel like you know fans off of the movie to be like, oh, what are they doing? But they have so much goodwill now that really they can release some of this stuff that may be a little bit more embarrassing. It's, and he does say it's stuff that they thought nobody should ever see. And so <laughs> they're going to be they're going to be releasing some of the stuff. And the comparison he made is kind of interesting because he said he's like there's some stuff that still pops up from the star wars trilogy occasionally like that sequence that uh happens at tashi station with luke and some of his friends and it's, it sounds like that some of these sequences are going to be like that uh and to tease what some of these sequences are he released uh, an alternate credit scene that they shot for iron man with samuel jackson as nick fury uh and in as we all know in that scene that's when he tells tony stark that he's here to talk to him about the avengers initiative um, but the there's a line preceding that that apparently was different in alternate takes. And this one is interesting because he mentions the other Marvel characters that had already been get, given movies at that point. Uh, the, Fury's opening line is, uh, as if gamma accidents, radioactive bug bites and assorted mutants weren't enough. I have to deal with a spoiled brat who doesn't play well with others and wants to keep all his toys to himself. Uh, and then it, the the scene continues with the normal way where he says, where T Tony Stark asks, who are you? And he's like, Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger initiative. And Tony Stark says, what are we avenging? And Fury says, whatever the hell we want. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is a line that doesn't really make any sense. Uh, so it's, it's pro probably good that they ended up uh, going with a different version. Aside from the fact that they probably couldn't reference other superheroes that they didn't have the rights to yet. Um, but it is interesting that he does uh, reference Spider-Man and X-Men since they, you know, Disney ended up sharing the rights with Spider-Man for a bit until recently, and the X-Men are now back in the possession of Marvel Studios. So it, it is so like the version that is in the actual movie is so kind of subtle and fun. This one is like so not subtle. Like the, it's it's the opposite, and it would have changed the entire, you know. 23 like if you set up that there's a world with mutants and spider-man at that point in time yeah it changes the whole scope yeah i wonder how things would have been different if they had just chosen to take that one take into the mcu like that, that that's kind of crazy and it's sort yeah. of interesting too because feige worked on a lot of those x-men movies and i'm wondering if like they you know by by having that dialogue there if this was so early where they were they were just recording this, you know, in case they were able to maybe work out a deal where the existing X-Men character, you know, Patrick Stewart and, and Ian McKellen and all of them could have, you know, uh, crossed over with Iron Man and, and potential characters like that. It, you know, if, if that's sort of what this line reading was all about. But Ben, you're you're saying that from a point of view of knowing where Marvel ended, the Marvel Cinematic Universe ended up going at that time. I don't think that that dream was possible. Like, I mean, I think he, I think Feige has said like he knew that that was ultimately really? the goal. He, he you know, yeah. he, he like he knew that he wanted to make an Avengers movie, right? So like, but, you but know, from we, the very beginning. But I guess what I'm saying is like we didn't think that Spider-Man entering the MCU was like a thing that was possible. Like that seemed like 
it's like mind blowing at the like at the time that that was announced. I like, wonder if this was if this was early enough where maybe they discussed the possibility of like maybe doing something with Fox where they like agree that the characters exist in the same universe and maybe right. at, yeah. maybe at some point they would cross over. I do think that there's a way to vaguely mention things like they probably ran that by legal. Like you could probably I wonder if you can say mutant. And oh, I mean, I guess now you can. But I wonder if you could say mutant in the MCU beforehand. They didn't they never said that with. um, What was that in the Age of Ultron thing? They didn't say mutants, did they? Yeah, they said they, they said enhanced enhanced. So maybe they can't say mutant. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, um, I'm excited to see what's in this Marvel vault and uh, what could have been and uh, some some of this more embarrassing footage. That That's going to be fun. Uh, but okay, uh, let's get to our feature presentation because this one is going to be a little, little bit uh, lengthier. Um, I got to see Joker a few weeks back. Uh, in attendance was director Todd Phillips and star Joaquin Phoenix. And after the movie... They gave a Q&A to our small group of uh, journalists. It was like a very small screening room. And uh, what I'm about to play is the audio from that Q&A. Uh, we have removed a uh, two spoiler questions and answers. Uh, what you're about to hear is pretty much uh, spoiler-free. I mean, it, you can pretty much assume what happens in Joker, but I don't think there's anything in here. that it, It's more of talking about... Joaquin Phoenix's approach and Phillips, like what he was going for with the script. Uh, and I think you will enjoy that because there's some interesting stuff here, especially with uh, how Phoenix got involved with this film, because it, it seemed like uh, he was very reluctant to sign on. Uh, so here I present to you a chat with Joker director Todd Phillips and star Joaquin Phoenix. Don't have to have questions. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, I find like, in the movies, it has to sit a little bit. But, all right. How are you? Oh, you're going to... Hey, really? Good, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Did you dig it? Yeah. Don't pick on Steve. Yeah, you guys like it? Yeah. Or, no, you don't have to, but if somebody's quiet, everyone's quiet until they hate it. We're speechless. Yeah, hard, though. It's like... Yeah, no, I know it's not like a woo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's lovely. Did you have an emotional reaction to it? Yeah. 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 It's very, it's uh, in the middle of the credits, where it's all of a sudden lights on, now let's talk. But that's what I was saying. Sort of I, I find it difficult. Right, exactly. I find it difficult to talk immediately yeah. after a lot of films, this film in particular for me. Um, and I found that as we've shown it to people, even when I just bring somebody to the editing room and show it to a friend, a filmmaker friend, whoever, and then you go, it, it's over, and then you just, they need time a little yeah. bit to sort of process it, honestly, in a way. But, uh, you know, we don't have that luxury, but we're here to, we, we can answer stuff if you have questions. Um, we can talk about things. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Rob Keyes from ScreenRant. Um, just building on what you're saying, was that your goal from the beginning when you were thinking or pitching this idea? The goal that you can't talk about it after. <laughs> 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 had a sort of profound impact to the point where you are going to be self reflective Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I mean, not a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I always enjoy movies that are difficult to speak about right after. And you go, you know, I want to process this a little bit. I always find those to be particularly rewarding in a way. Um, it's not like that was a specific goal, but it, it's something that I always enjoy about movies where you can't necessarily distill it down into a you know, one-line thing um, really simply. 
so yeah, I suppose it was somewhat of a goal. Uh, hey, Jenna Bush, Sci-Fi. Um, the physicality of Arthur's character is fascinating, and I'm curious how you developed that. What would what was it? What what what? Well, just the sort of dance movements mm -hmm. and the, the the fact that when he's confident, when he's himself, he has this very mm -hmm. different physicality than when he's sort of trapped within himself. Mm -hmm. Well. Um, the some of the dancing we we knew right there there was a, there was the kind of the, the sequence where he's a clown and then there was the dance on the steps so I worked with the choreographer for that but then something after working with him um, Michael Arnold was his name uh, I just started watching a lot of videos um, with people dancing movement and it just I think one started, of the, like one of the earliest things we spoke about was that or not to cut you off but that Arthur had music in him like you know like mm -hmm. it just existed in him some people you know that you might know personally have that feeling and i always thought that about arthur but it was sort of kept in and trapped and there was something about that evolving but like the scene in the bathroom which i think is like what you're getting to where he just starts dancing that's not in the script that's not in the thing that's just something that kind of evolved in like oh this is a moment where we can sort of show that it's kind of fighting to get out you know um, but I love the dancing in the movie. I, I think we should have more. You of put it. your hands right. <laughs> Was the dancing always there? Well, the dancing—the only dancing in the in the script was the dancing, obviously, as a clown in the beginning, yeah. which isn't really much of a dance. It's a performance. But the dancing on the, on stairs, the stairs was there. Right. Other than that, we didn't do it. But when we started talking about Arthur, we started talking about music and having music uh -huh. in him and that kind of thing. So, get you know. to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hey, I'm Jim Bevita with IGN. Uh, I I was kind of struck by uh, the the period setting, the fact that it was specifically, I guess, 1981, and I'm in my mid 40s, and a lot of stuff that I kind of forgot about growing up about how kind of ugly a period of time it was in the late 70s to the mid 80s. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that kind of choice of that, I had even forgotten about Zora the Gay Blade until <laughs> the origins. Right, came um, out in '81. Yeah, and then even like the Bernie Getz kind of thing that yeah. sparks the whole thing. Um, well, for us, we never say in the movie it's 1981, but we always yeah. say eh, it's late '70s, early '80s, mainly because we don't want people to be like, "Wow, that car wasn't out in 1970s, <laughs> early '80s." Yeah. But um, you know, the time for me. The reason we said it there, there's a lot of reasons. One reason was to separate it, quite frankly, from the DC universe. For to, when, when I when pitched it to Warner Brothers and handed the script in, to sort of make it clear, this isn't fucking with anything you have going on. This is like a separate universe. So much so, it takes place in the past before everything else. Another reason is because tonally, you know, the movie is very much a character study. That I'm I'm a little older than you, but same as movies we grew up on and loved, and. You go, God, those movies don't get made as much anymore. They get made, these character studies, but, you know, um, Social Network is a, is a great one. There Will Be Blood is probably the best in the last 20 years of character study. But in the 70s and 80s, they were much more frequent. So in a weird way, it was also just an homage to that time. We're making a movie that feels like that, that why not set it there? It was not some really um, great thing. It was just a, a few reasons, you know, and part of the reason that every filmmaker likes to do things, period, so you don't have to deal with fucking technology in movies because it's so frustrating. <laughs> well, if they have a cell phone, that gets solved, right? <laughs> so, um, so there's a bunch of reasons, but you know, we 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 just like the uh, there's something else. I like the handmade feel of those movies back then, and we tried to kind of inject that. 
being that we were going basically no CGI, which doesn't mean none. There's obviously some world building we've done. But there's some real handmade quality to those films in the late 70s and 80s that I just always loved, I'm sure most people in this room do, that you don't feel as much nowadays. Um, Mike Manalo from the Nerds of Color. Um, what? The Nerds of Color? The Nerds of Color. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Joaquin, uh, just as a viewer watching the movie, it looked like such a transformative performance. It felt like a transformative performance. Um, one where I, just as a viewer, am assuming that you went to some very dark places to sort of capture the essence of this character, of Arthur. And I wanted to know how deep did you get? <laughs> did you get yourself? How did you get yourself out of that? I'm honestly gonna disappoint you. I just, I don't think I did. I think it was like, you know, so we had a good time. Awesome. <laughs> 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 oh, I feel like we, either I'm gonna disappoint you, or I'm gonna seem like an actor that's not really committed. You know, like, oh, he didn't want to do it. We did laugh a lot. I, we la- I mean, it's the thing. Cause I saw somebody in the elevator, and they're like, it's really fucking intense. I was like, oh, we laugh like every day. It's like, <laughs> nothing really to laugh at. I go, oh, we kind of aren't fucked up. Like crying laughing. Like, yeah, like every day going, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so honestly, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I love those stories of actors. I kind of do wish that I, I was that way because it sounds so cool. But I don't, I didn't have that experience. I, no, but I mean, you also prepare a lot more than you probably want to. Well, whatever, but it's what right. you fucking do. Right. What do you mean? That's <laughs> what you do. It's a regular job. You right. know what I mean? It's like what you do for your work. Right. I'm just saying you didn't show up and just be like, oh, I can do this. It, we talked a lot about No, it. I mean, listen, we would, I mean, I was telling my sisters the other day, we would arrive two hours before our call, mm-hmm. right? Be in the back of the trailer working, and then we'd go home and we'd call each other. Well, we text for a couple hours. Right. Then we'd get frustrated with the texting. <laughs> so I would just fucking call. I'd call you, you wouldn't That's answer true. a few times. <laughs> and then I kept calling back and finally you were like, what? <laughs> right? So there was that. But it was a great process for It was. It was. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, um, I think it, because it, w- it was it was um, inspiring. Right? So whatever you put into it, it kind of gave you so much back, right? And most we just yeah. Really How'd you find the laugh? Uh, the laugh. <coughs> Which one? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. To me, there's like three different laughs in the movie. Well, I guess the, uh, whatever you would deem the most iconic, fully formed laugh. Well, really, um, do you remember that I basically I auditioned myself? Yeah, I had I had you come over you to audition the laugh. That's right. Because I didn't think I could do it. Right. And because you showed me some videos, right? That's right. So he showed me some videos of some laughs, and I thought that's really good. And he just in the script it described that um, described the laugh being almost painful. And that was a really interesting way to describe laughter. Um, and so I just kind of like. I don't know. I, uh, you came into my house. I tried, and it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, because I said it for five minutes trying to work it up. Yeah. And finally, you said, "You don't have to do this." You already have the part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I, I have to do this. I have because if I don't do this now, if I can't do it, force yeah. myself to find it now, then forever we're gonna be. I'm gonna fucking push out my right. Right. So, so we did. We did. And 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 for him to summon it on the day of the shooting was always different and sometimes he would need time to do it honestly the, the, I'm talking about the affliction laugh you know that's that was to me probably 
I can't speak for you, but the hardest one to do. Mm-hmm. There's the laugh where he's fake laughing to be one of the guys or in the comedy club. And then there's the end in the Arkham where he's genuinely laughing at something. But the affliction laugh, I think, was probably hard to muster up. So there were times on set where it would be a little yeah, bit pacing. I mean, or just... I would throw out a private joke to him that would turn and sort of make you laugh about no. somebody on the crew or something. <laughs> 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 I never made fun of people on the crew. <laughs> 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 I'm, uh, I'm Mark Hughes with Forbes. Um, I'm curious about. Actually, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> I, am, I have no idea. Stalk they, I was stalking the water out front. <laughs> and they just let me watch. Uh, I'm curious about for the writing and for the for the performance aspect of it. There's stuff in there that uh, I, as far as the having a, a head trauma and the implication that that may have. I have a family member that literally has a lot of the affliction that's in this, mm-hmm. and it was from a head trauma as yeah. a kid. And it was. Did you actually? Was that that wasn't coincidence? You also no, looked that up and it, studied all of that, and right? We studied and then, that. Quite frankly, that laugh, which could be, in in people, it's afflicted in different ways. Some people cry from this, and some people laugh, and it's always at the wrong moment. Where you know, it's always this, and it's really oh, yeah. painful. And um, what we discovered was it happens from head trauma as, as a young person or even older, and it happens from MS. We didn't necessarily want to give. Joker, Arthur, MS. So right. we, we went with this head trauma thing. And yeah, I mean, you know, the movie in, in every way tries to be grounded in reality as much as possible. I mean, it still has a foot in the comic book world for sure. But we just kept thinking everything, let's put everything through a realistic lens. Like, why does he have a white face? Well, we're going to drop him in acid. I don't know how real, while it's amazing in the comic books and Jack Nichols and all that, doesn't feel very real that that would happen if you fell into a vat of acid. So <laughs> let's come up with a realistic answer for everything, and that was one for the laugh. So yeah, we, we researched it. And does that make sense? It does, but I mean, even that, we don't know. Right, we don't even know if he's putting Wait, it on. In some we ways, don't we know. Did, in some ways, there, there was like, as much as there was like very thorough research and answers for a lot of these things, we also, whenever we got to a point where we felt like we were coming up with a definitive reason for anything, we backed away from it. We found a way to kind of circumnavigate it a little bit, right? Yes. Just wanted it to be... He hates logic. <laughs> There's a moment where you even say to, to his locked. mother that it, you told me it was an affliction that I had a condition, but I don't. Right. So right. that I... You that, say that, that's the real me. And that and, that, and that's an important part because you go, oh, wait, it isn't. It, it, well, like, what is this? Yeah. I mean, that, Right. And I don't think we necessarily want to answer those things for ourselves or for anyone else. I think part of, like, the joy of this movie is how the audience interacts with the film and what they think about the character. Right? Yeah. And that's what was... That's yeah, I've had I younger people it. watch the movie and just go, this is an awesome origin story of the Joker <laughs> that I would have never thought of. And then we've had other people that are more seasoned watching movies that see references or see, oh, well, this is reflective of what's going on today and blah, blah, blah. And it's just just two val- as valid responses, you know? And so it's always difficult when you make a movie to define it for people because it's not the... Your job is to make the movie and let them sort of, you know. I can't believe you remember those lines. How do you remember those lines? Because they're good. I have that. I remember. I'll remember like really? every line in this movie. Really? I love that. <laughs> I can't believe you do that. I it's I mean, absurd. And I know, you're from Forbes. Normally, you inter- interview CEOs and things. <laughs> <laughs> no, just movies. That's all I do. Oh, this is okay. all I do. I just, <laughs> and stack, stalk the water. Right. Yeah. Movie, right. Just 
Wolf of Wall Street and Wall Street. That's the only movies I review. Every week I put a new review. It gets old. Lewis here with Nuke the Fridge. Thanks for the movie. It's a bonding experience. I feel like I'm related to everyone here now. Something great with everyone here. Is there any thought of how old Arthur is in the film? You mean what his age is? Yeah, what his age is. I know 30 was pushed around because he was... Who pushed around 30? Uh, oh, you mean could sturdy with the with the yeah. thing? Yeah. No, we never really gave much thought to it. You know, yeah. We just thought. And you're saying the age dis- discrepancy between him and Bruce? That's what we're, yeah, that's what we're curious about. Yeah. You, you know, we I mean, again, like, there are people that watch this movie and go. <laughs> <laughs> but there are there are people that watch this movie that people that I've shown this movie to that go, oh, I get it. And by the way, I'm not saying they're right. They go, oh, I get it. He's not the Joker. He's the inspiration for the Joker. He's somebody that inspired the Joker. And you go, oh, that's an interesting way to look. I go, why? Well, their age difference. And blah, blah, blah. I go, oh, that's interesting. Well, that yeah. assumes he's remembering the dates correctly, and maybe he's not. And that assumes he's and remembering. And there's that. Jermaine's here from io9. Uh, you're thinking movie here about a lot of different things, right? It could be about, you know, mental illness or the haves and have nots. But so the, the fact that he's the Joker is almost superfluous to the whole thing. But once you make it a Joker movie, you bring in all these different expectations and the comic book history. So can you talk about sort of the positives and negatives of making a Joker movie instead of just, like you said, like a character piece of a character you've never heard of before? Um, I just thought it was an interesting way to um, to tell a story. I think other interesting new approach to the comic book world. And it's funny because a, a lot of you guys have probably reprinted something I said in Empire, where I was misquoted, I'm not going to complain. I like the writer; he wrote a great piece. Where I said we didn't take anything from the comic book world. It's actually not what I said. I, what I said was we didn't take anything from one particular comic. We kind of picked, picked and chose what we liked from the kind of 80-year canon of Joker. And you say, oh, that's interesting. It was a stand-up comic. We kind of like pulled a, a few things that we liked. But I don't know. To us, it was um, yes. Could have it been called Arthur, and it should be about a clown, maybe. I just thought um, there's a new way to tell a comic book movie, and maybe I'm wrong, but and let's do it as a character study. Part of what I guess a big part of what interested me about it more than making a movie called Arthur was um, to kind of deconstruct the comic book movie a little bit. Uh, that was that was part of what was exciting about it to me. For him, it might be different because I know that you had a lot of reticence being in a comic book movie, you know, and. And doing that kind of thing. Did I? Did, I mean, I, I would imagine in the beginning that was okay. just like, oh, you know. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> Steve, do you remember? Right? We talked about it. We, we did. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were. Uh, I think you were debating. Don't you remember talking about how everyone was asking you about Joker and you were being very evasive? Because it, it sounds. It seemed to me like you weren't sure. I actually already had agreed to do it when we spoke. I lied to you. <laughs> no, but here, but in all fairness, I have to do what you say. I've never agreed to do the I was, movie. I was going to say, I, I refute that because I don't know that he ever agreed to do the movie. One day he just showed up at a wardrobe fitting. Because <laughs> <laughs> every day I would say, that I'd go up to his house, we'd talk about the script, we'd audition the laugh, we would do all these meetings. 
And I go, all right, so? And he's like, so what? Are you in? He's like, oh, that's not how I do this. You know, it's like a process for me. And uh, what are you doing on Thursday? <laughs> <Last night? laughs> you know, I know. I don't really like work like that. I'm more just kind of, it just he had to get into the thing. character. I actually asked one quick question. So we spoke in June or July of last year. And what I gathered was you were still debating. No, no. If it was July, he had already been to a wardrobe fitting. So, right, so yeah. I, I just But here's the thing. If it was July... I mean, because I got to New York in August, August first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I would have been have already been like Losing seriously weight. dieting. Yeah, I, I, all, I don't remember what the date was. It was when right before you were never really here came out. Yeah. Oh, but that's not July. That's like April, isn't okay, it? So I'm, I'm messing up the date. Yeah. So I'm just curious. When did you actually decide I want to take on this this role? And when did you find out? Because it, there must have been a day where it clicked in your brain where you're like, when? okay, I'm gonna do it. I found out at a wardrobe fitting. <laughs> Mark Bridges called me and said, Joaquin's here. You want to come down? <laughs> I don't remember. No, it really was never there, like, all right, let's I was do like, it. all right, we're doing yeah. this. It really was like, well, let's, let's go. Let's, let's try just keep exploring it. And let's, oh, let's yeah, and, and let's look at some makeup. And, let's, and all right. of a sudden, we're shooting. It was never like, <laughs> shake your hand and go, I'm in. Which a lot of actors have had that experience. It's the decent with. thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Decent. He said to me at one point, he goes, uh, I go, uh, you know, come on, can't you just, he says, what do you want me to do? I go, at some point I want you to say, thank you. Yes, I'm in. Right? Yeah. Never happened. Never. Not even once, once we were done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still debating whether I'm doing Venice. <laughs> do you have a question, headband? You want to say something so we can... Uh... So I watched being comedy last night for the first time. Changed my life. Like So one thing I realized was like the color pattern and the um, we have a, I mean, obviously there's a nod to a few things in this movie. King of Comedy, for me, you're way younger. I saw it probably when I was your age. And uh, changed my life as well. I just love it so much. And obviously, I went to De Niro, sent him the script. He understood the kind of reference, understood the sort of, you know, flip of Rupert Pupkin, Pupkin to uh, Jerry Langford. Um, as far as the, the, the color scheme, it wasn't honestly so... In that movie, it's a little bit more direct. Yeah. In, in this, it's a little bit more random, but you know, a lot of what we took, the, the curtains, for example, is a little bit of a, a spin on Johnny Carson's curtains. Um, but certainly, there's a touch of King of Comedy in there. There's a touch of Network in there. There's a touch, for me, of Dog Day After. There's a lot of movies, all from that time we were talking about earlier, um, that, that um, speak to that kind of again going back to like why do we set it back then it's just to, to me not that the movie's a love letter to those movies but it's very much an homage to that yeah. that's fucking interesting I wish I would have known that yeah now I get to learn all about this movie yeah <laughs> thanks Joe about what have you have you watched it in fall have I seen the movie yeah <laughs> what do I say? I got. What am I? How many? It's a hard question to answer. I think um, you started it. Now he came over to my house and watched the movie. Um, well, I mean, you know, because there are many cuts. So I mean, the first cut of this movie was two hours and thirty-five minutes. He saw that, then he came back. You know, and right now it's two hours and two minutes. I think with credit. So uh, you'd have to ask him. Right, but. I know. Well, it's so hard because. Well, you know, it just sounds it. lame either I mean, way. No matter what you say, you yeah, sound, sounds you're like, you sound like a fucking conceited boy. Right. right. <laughs> 
there you have it. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.